Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better and more just world. Welcome to a Just Us and the Climate podcast brought to you by the Climate Justice Coalition and hosted by Solid Gold Podcasts. My name is Robert Krauss from Centre for Applied Legal Studies and I'll be chairing the discussion with panellists Lauren Liebenberg of Living Limpopo and Herd Reserve and Kirsten Ewens of All Rise Attorneys. Despite the urgency of the climate and environmental crisis, where there are large profits to be made from fossil fuels like coal and from heavy industry, environmental justice considerations still often take second place. The authorization of the Messina Mercado SCZ for a heavy industrial area in the sensitive Vembe Biosphere Reserve in Limpopo, South Africa, represents just the most recent episode of the conflict between the drive for profits and for environmental justice. For us to understand the implications of the Messina Mercado SCZ, as well as the legal challenge, we have in the studio two experts on the matter. First, we have to explain the dangers posed by the Messina Mercado Special Economic Zone and what the Special Economic Zone is. We have Lauren Liebenberg of Living and Popo and Herd Reserve. And to explain the legal challenge, we have Kirsten Ewens of All Rise Attorneys, who, who represents Living Limpopo, Herd Reserve and Centre for Applied Legal Studies. Lauren, could you please tell the listeners, firstly, what is the Messina Mercado Special Economic Zone, MMSEZ, and why should South Africans and the world be worried about it? Thanks very much, Robert. I think as you, you basically summarised there in that intro, the Messina Mercado Special Economic Zone is basically a coal-fueled industrial mega project in the northernmost district of Limpopo's of Limpopo province, the Vembe district. And in particular the the Chinese South African state-backed um, special economic zone, which is kind of a, a reboot, let's say, of the old um, industrial development zone, the IDZ concept, is essentially like the undergirding of a really ambitious industrialization and urbanization plan for this very remote region of Limpopo and is based on the exploitation of what are presently the unexploited coal resources of the Greater Soutpansburg coal field. The steel manufacturing Energy Metallurgical Zone, as it's officially designated, is the keystone project. It's the project that will unlock those coal reserves um, still buried in the ground up there and will drive extensive coal mining in the district as intended. How is essentially because the power plant and ore smelter create a purpose-built buyer for the coal um, on the very edge of the coal pits. Coal, of course, being a primary raw material of steel. And the zone will be, the, the heavy industrial zone will be supplied by 12 new open cast coal mines that are planned in the vicinity. In addition to which, the, the SES, in, in consistent with the, with the concept of a SES as a heavily in, subsidized 
industrial zone to attract in particular foreign direct investment in manufacturing capacity is going to also unlock those the public purse to fund the dedicated power, water and transport infrastructure that will facilitate not just the export of the zone's output, the, the, the crude steel that will be manufactured there, but of course the coal that will be exported from the collieries that are being developed there as well. So in a nutshell, we are talking about um, a very ambitious coal fueled industrialization scheme for a very wild and remote region. I think as you alluded to um, in your intro as well, the Vembe district, in fact, is a UNESCO-inscribed biosphere reserve, the Vembe Biosphere Reserve. It's an area that is abundant in natural capital and um, is rich in biodiversity value. And this industrialization plan will obviously alter the course of its future irrevocably. That does sound incredibly concerning, particularly in the context of runaway climate change and and growing water scarcity. But could you please provide some of the specific features of this development which pose a particular concern in relation to environmental justice? It's almost hard to know where to begin um, in terms of um, the concerns we have about the impact of this of this development um, on the Vembe Biosphere Reserve region. Obviously, in the very first instance, for me, would be the threat to biodiversity, the biodiversity loss it will certainly precipitate, the pollution and severe irreversible environmental degradation, although inadequately assessed in the environmental impact assessment process, is clearly going to be commensurate with the scale of the project itself. This is the biggest, single biggest such industrial development in South Africa's history. And to give you an idea of the scale of the thing, it will increase South Africa's steel manufacturing capacity by a factor of two to three, um, something like 13 million tons of crude steel and alloys is, is the anticipated output of that zone. And as I say, it's, it's essentially there to, to drive extensive coal mining in the region. Each of the collieries, for example, is two or three pits that will be, that will be developed. So the environmental impacts alone are very significant and of grave concern to us. In, Addition to which, and related to which, is the water resource depletion and water resource contamination that it will that it will also cause. The plans to supply the zone's vast water requirements include a plan for what has been dubbed the Messina Dam, so a mega dam on the Limpopo River, that Robert is intended to capture 60% of the river's annual flow and divert it then to the industrial zone because metallurgy is not just uh, energy intensive, and let's refer to it as congealed energy, but it's not just dirty, it's also very thirsty because coal is. Those coal washeries require vast quantities of water and the only available water resource in the region is the Limpopo River. So the impact of that dam, particularly on downstream water users, will be devastating. And the plans to augment, to supplement the water 
um, requirements of the zone, something in the order of 125 million cubic meters per annum is required to meet the zone during its operational phase. The additional plans involve abstracting groundwater from from um, local groundwater sources and a whole scheme to divert water from Zimbabwe water sources on the Zoe Dam along what's called the Mutashi Corridor. So that's another 13 million cubic meters per annum that will be siphoned from there. So it threatens all other water users and obviously the entire Limpopo Basin hydrology is is going to be severely impacted by it. Then we move into the fact that this is a highly carbon intensive development and obviously its climate crisis related impacts will be significant. According to the very crudely assessed climate impacts in uh, the specialist report that was produced for the environmental impact assessment, Robert, they estimate that the zone will emit about a billion tonnes of carbon dioxide over its 30-year lifespan. It's estimated on the basis of 33 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent from the metallurgical zone itself and excludes the um, emissions from the power plants, which in theory would be double counted because emissions from the um, steel manufacturing plant, those those emissions factors uh, include scope two and scope three emissions, supposedly. But we've also got a petrochemical plant. We've also got other um, cement manu- lime and cement manufacturing plants. We've got a host of other heavy industrial developments that will uh, are planned um, that will accompany the um, metallurgy zone, and none of those those emissions have even been factored into the equation. Nonetheless, the the carbon impact, as assessed in for the EIA, will be so serious that according to Promethium Carbon, who undertook that particular assessment for the EIA, it will jeopardise South Africa's ability to meet its its nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement because it represents something in the order of 10 to 15% of our emissions from all sectors combined, it's very unlikely that we'll be able to meet the budget cuts, the carbon budget cuts that are targeted to be met by 2030. So it exposes South Africa then to the potential risk of carbon leakage sanctions under the European Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, which applies to steel as well as a number of other um, export products. Um, So but that's just the economic impacts, you know, that derive from what ultimately is intensifying of the climate crisis itself from its significant increase in emissions of greenhouse gases. And I want to stress that this doesn't even begin to calculate the exported emissions from the coal, which this industrial zone is going to enable the export of all of that coal from the from the Greater Sotbansburg coal fields because as I said it was it's the investment in that dedicated infrastructure it needs um, to get the coal to port um, will now materialize as a result of the industrial development zone. So South Africa was also going to be responsible um, for those exported emissions from the coal that will then be combusted mostly in China. The company MC Mining that has the rights to those to those reserves 
um, of the Greater South Pittsburgh Coalfields has got a number of offtake agreements signed with Chinese coal buyers who are also significant shareholders in in the company. So we've got we'd have those on our on our climate conscience as well. And then as a result of these kind of devastating um, reinforcing, self-reinforcing environmental impacts, we've got collateral damage on other industries to consider. So from farming to tourism, which are the two biggest sort of organically industries that have evolved organically, organically up there in Limpopo, both of them will be severely threatened by the environmental degradation and the resource, the water resource depletion in particular. And um, I should mention that, frankly, it's also a threat to the local steel industry for ArcelorMittal and its counterparts outside of the special economic zone, which where they don't necessarily enjoy all the subsidized infrastructure and uh, factory rents, the tax breaks, the slashed corporate tax rate to 17%. So we'll be nursing, in effect, a foreign competitor inside the economic zone. South Africa already suffers from chronic overcapacity in its in its steel, screwed steel sector. It um, spends its life been defending against dumping by China under the steel industry master plan, basically a rescue plan for the steel industry. It's sort of suckered on, hand, on taxpayer handouts while it tries to cope with um, huge overcapacity. So this new industrial zone that is dedicated to steel manufacture and on this scale without any clear plan for the sale and the, the sales of this um, output either locally or regionally or elsewhere is obviously extremely, if I were a steel worker and or the steel workers unions, I would be very worried that the uh, specialist impact assessment report I just mentioned, the climate impact assessment report, in fact, makes the admission that because it will not in and of itself stimulate demand for for steel, it's um, an increase in the supply of steel. Uh, so it argues for the project on the basis that it will be cleaner than the old mothboard plants at Soldana and the old Iskor plants in the Highfelt, and that therefore the development of this huge smelter would be have net improve, um, environmental benefits if we then um, retired some of our plants, South, the South African ones, with the South African workers outside the zone who do not enjoy the benefits um, of special economic zone foreign investors. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. But um, the last thing I'd like to mention, though, is that it would also threaten you know, the, the, a heavy fiscal debt burden looms for this. The project is estimated at um, the infrastructure investment is estimated by the developers as something in the order of 22 billion US dollars. So it excludes the development of the actual factories. We're just talking about the supporting infrastructure, the bulk services um, for the zone. So that and according again to the master plan for the for the zone, that burden falls on the South African fiscus. I'm um, no doubt facilitated by loans from China, but 
there's so much opacity surrounding the financing plans for the zone. I can't um, tell you with any accuracies to what are the sources of the funds. The SES fund, the Industrial Development Corporation and the Limpopo Provincial Government and Department of Trade Industry Trade and industry are always mentioned as sources of funds, but there's very little in the way of disclosure. So it's still nonetheless the fact that we are making this investment as South Africa in this industrial zone in order to attract manufacturing investment um, from from foreign, in particular Chinese, um, quarters. So the whole concept of capacity cooperation, and in particular production capacity cooperation, only really makes sense, Robert, if one, the host country can afford um, the debt that that will, that can afford to service those loans, to invest in that production capacity, and to needs the production capacity. Now, in this instance, it's very hard to justify South Africa making the substantial investment in boosting our steel manufacturing capacity threefold um, when it suffers from chronic overcapacity as it is. So the debt burden public purse is is a grave concern for us. And um, lastly, the impact on rural communities up there and their quality of life and their way of life. You know, the, the Chivenda and Tsitsonga-speaking people, uh, culturally and in terms of the spiritual practices, are so deeply bound with nature, with Lamupa, it's can't, they can't really be separated. And the impact of very intensive industrialization and urbanization on those communities will be devastating. We are anticipating also huge inward migration um, of, of migrant labor seeking work opportunities. And uh, that will strain service delivery further. You've got the health, human health impacts of a noxious industrial zone, which have been inadequately assessed for the EIA. But um, there are lots of other independent sources demonstrating just how severe the impact will be um, on human health. And in addition to which you've got um, those communities are small scale farmers. Um, they are often um, livelihoods depend on the harvesting of renewable natural resources, commodities like the Mapani worm, Moshonza up there, it's going to delicacy. That all of those things are dependent on the biodiversity of the area and they depend on the fertility of the soil. So the poisoning of the soil, the air, the water, the sickening of the children, the d- destruction of traditional culture are all impacts that are not even... They don't even get a qualitative assessment anyway, and will obviously be in our, um, in from our perspective, utterly devastating to the region. So, from your very thorough answer, it is very clear that the MMSZ has severe water, biodiversity, climate, as well as human rights implications. But what would you say to? those who would argue that despite all the risks this represents the only available shot for for an area marked by very severe levels of unemployment poverty and inequality the only available shot at development and that and that because there aren't alternative paths to development as imperfect as this is to to oppose it is to effectively oppose development 
Robert, that is exactly what, <laughs> as you are aware, we are regularly accused of as effectively being opposed to development of this deeply impoverished region, which um, suffers from high rates of unemployment and very poor service delivery, and um, that our obstruction of this is to obstruct people's hopes and aspirations for a better for a better life. So, yeah, that the 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 charges sting somewhat. I mean, for us, the architects of this plan who cast themselves as these visionaries who will give rise to the coming centuries Witwatersrand built not on gold this time but on coal and steel I could easily scoff at the foolishness of this type of industrial engineering scheme that has got such weak economic merits to it but if we just engage you know more directly with the with the argument in favor of it that it will create employment opportunities and economic development, let's acknowledge that it will. The developers anticipate that it will create about 20,000 jobs over the, in the first five years um, of, its, of its development and up to 50,000 indirect and indirect jobs over a sort of a 20-year period. Now, I would still just like to add at this point, though, that those jobs promises are just that. They are backed by nothing. There aren't any guarantees of these of, of, of this job creation. Certainly, to the extent that this project is extremely high risk and there is not a small chance that it winds up a stranded asset in the bushveld, um, those jobs may not necessarily materialize at all. But Shenzhen Hoimor, the... Chinese operator of the zone has no binding obligations on it to employ X percentage of the workforce from the local community or anything else of that nature. So uh, they sound a lot for, for us. We are we still have reservations about the um, the vagueness of the jobs promises, as well as what proportion of the of the zones sort of will be reserved for local content from small businesses locally that could supply the zone. Um, they're the type of industrial activities likely to exclude um, most people up there in the Vembe where um, skills development and all the rest of it is lacking. So we, we, we have some misgivings about it, but it's more fundamental than that for us. For us, it is the issue of the fact that no alternative development models have been adequately or frankly at all considered. There is an obligation to do so under South Africa's environmental legislation and it's an obligation that has simply not um, has simply not been met. There is a complete fixation with the coal as um, a mineral resource uh, in inverted commas and the Limpopo Provincial Government, the DTIC and DMRE at national level um, are wedded to this notion of imitating the so-called Shenzhen miracle in China of replicating the CES model of development here. They will espouse the um, the vision for to turn the Vembe into a coal-fired hellscape on the basis of the fact that there is only one development path 
And that is industrialization that we must therefore um, mine and then beneficiate is the term. Um, the minerals at, that are, are that we are endowed with, we are blessed up there with coal. And it is the coal must has therefore be shoveled into some great blast furnaces um, and turned into more unwanted steel to to find somewhere a destination in the world. And for us, the it's laughable the kind of um, jobs prospects that are going to be attached to this whole development concept. We are not talking about 19th century steel mills anymore um, up there in Sheffield or something where there were extremely labor intensive industries back then. Now, of course, you know, they're sort of you walk into in order for this this steel um, the steel mill to be competitive, it's going to look like something out of, from my, betraying my age here, Buck Rogers in the 25th century, where there's nothing but a space deck dashboard and one lone oak with a, with a helmet on running the, the, running the, the, the great blast and smelters and, and the furnaces. So we're dubious about this being particularly, being the savior of the Vembe, um, as, as a spouse. And then we have the fact that as far as we're concerned, the alternative development models that are emerging now, that rest on preserving the natural capital, that on that on its renewable natural resources, its wildlife um, and 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 its botanical natural resources, the potential is vast. We are entering finally a developmental. Um, there's an opportunity for South Africa to shift into a different developmental trajectory, that one that offers. Far more potential. We are the Vembe district has so rich in biodiversity, and it is, in other words, brilliantly positioned to take advantage of some of these emerging opportunities. And to give you just an indication, in the Limpopo provincial government's conservation plan for um, the whole of Limpopo, um, encompassing obviously also the Vembe district, the making the case technical report reached the conclusion after they'd crunched their numbers that. The tourism and biodiversity economy, with all of the sectors that that encompasses, the sort of various other industries that um, now fall under a, a umbrella of the biodiversity economy, are 40 times more efficient at generating jobs than mining and industry. The stats from StatsSA indicate that there are more people employed already in tourism and the biodiversity economy sectors combined than in mining and industry combined already. And the, 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 the trends favor South Africa's rich natural, renewable natural resources as the basis of our wealth in future and our ability to deliver prosperity to our people. The, the last sort of number I'll throw out there is that the numbers done by SANBI, the South African National Biodiversity Institute, in assessing the value of our biodiversity will also cite the statistics that are very robustly interrogated by StatsSA that every job in protected areas generates another five in those complementary sectors that depend then on the protected area and um, its protection of the ecosystem functioning and the biodiversity. So in the Limpopo province, um, and in the Vembe in particular, we are supposed to be, we have been designated as a biodiversity economy node under government's quite visionary Operation Pakisa for the Biodiversity Economy program that's, that's been coordinated by the DEFFE, but 
um, was actually originally developed by the Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation under the presidency. So under the Operation Pakisa program, which specifically targets um, land reform beneficiaries, the opportunities for small businesses um, and jobs and livelihoods are uh, numerous. There's a number of initiatives in both the wildlife economy, in bioprospecting and biotrade, um, as well as in more traditional tourism sort of sector. And overall, the, the targeted um, numbers of jobs uh, and livelihoods that could be created under that program is really exciting because the capacity of the biodiversity economy to create employment opportunities, unskilled work in rural areas is basically unrivaled. So it's a huge tragic loss um, for the VMB that those development, um, that the spatial planning framework, the um, economic development plans, the legal framework under biodiversity stewardship um, has all basically been shelved. Those plans are sitting uh, literally on a shelf gathering dust somewhere um, while the potential is slowly eroding. And in the meantime, government continues to aggressively pursue its coal field industrialization scheme um, for, in our opinion, principally the benefit of outsiders, very remote shareholders um, and foreign interests at the expense, really, of the local economy as well as its environment. Given this tremendous environmental and human toll posed by this development and the manner in which the case for the development, the developmental case, is has many holes in it and is, and is open to challenge, it's not surprising that the first key decision to authorize um, the SEZ has been challenged by numerous organizations. One of the challenges is, in fact, by, by Living Limpopo and, and, and Herd Reserve um, and the Center for Applied Legal Studies, and, and who are represented by the environmental law organization All Rise Attorneys. And so we have in the studio Kirsten Ewens from All Rise Attorneys, who will get some of her insights into into this particular challenge. So my first question to you is, could you explain to the viewers which, which is the specific decision you are challenging and, and who took that decision in government? Yeah, sure, Robert. Um, I'll have to explain a little bit how the environmental system works, just so that it's easy to understand how the decisions are made. An environmental impact assessment process is done for a development like this um, and what happens is the the stakeholders like Lauren um, would have to submit comments their comments on that that environmental impact assessment report and the environmental impact management plan um, which which they did um, and so did Culls and so did we as as all rise attorneys and a number of other stakeholders submitted their comments, raising all the concerns with the development. In spite of the the comments and objections being raised at that stage, the environmental authorization the the the, the environmental impact assessment practitioner um, 
suggested that the project go ahead. The first one didn't, incidentally. <laughs> um, and so they got a new environmental impact assessment practitioner who then um, said it should go ahead in spite of all the specialist studies that fed into that environmental impact assessment report. Well, after that, what has to happen is that we have to follow an internal appeal process according to the statutory um, requirements. So we filed an appeal to the, unfortunately, the same decision maker that made the the decision on uh, granting the environmental. Well, let me go back. Sorry. So the 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 environmental authorized the env- environmental impact assessment gets handed over to the department, uh, the Lapopo Department of Economic. What is it? Department of Economic, Economic Development, Development and Tourism. Environment and Tourism. Environment and Tourism. So a whole lot of things in one there, hence the problem. Um, and that uh, environmental authorization was granted. And so, of course, the next level step is we all must now appeal to that decision. And unfortunately, that appeal was decided by the MEC of the same department, so the same province. Um, and incidentally, the, incidentally, the, in, the applicant is also from the Limpopo province. So it's a, it's a bit of an incestuous hierarchical system of the Limpopo Development Agency that is promoting this and developing it, who then must apply to the, the department. And then the MEC of the same department is the appeal authority. So unsurprisingly, in spite of all of the appeals that were submitted on this this project, and that we, we weren't the only ones appealing, um, the appeal was dismissed, which leaves us with only one other option, and that is to to take the matter to court, which is what we've done, along with two other attorneys who are representing different stakeholders. So there are actually three review applications currently for the same project. Um, the one is been, has been brought in the Pretoria High Court and two have been brought in the Apolokwane High Court. Um, and one of them in the Apolokwane High Court is ours on behalf of Herd Reserve, Living Limpopo and Culls. All Rises has been instructed by Culls, Living Limpopo and Herd Reserve to bring an application to review and set aside the decision that were made. The first decision was the dismissal of our internal appeal. And the second one is the environmental authorization that was granted. So the, the, the legal application is a review and a review basically to look at the decisions that were made, decide if they were correctly made and if they weren't to set them aside. How yeah. does a review in law differ from an appeal? Well, in this instance, the appeal is an internal appeal process. So it had to go to the MEC. In a court sense, if a decision is made by a court, then that can be taken on appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeals. So ultimately, if we're in the unfortunate situation of losing um, in the High Court, the review is dis- our application to review and set aside is dismissed, then we would take that on appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeals. Hopefully that won't happen, though. Hopefully we'll... We will definitely succeed, given the unbelievable grounds we have for success. So in your experience, 
Do you know of any cases where for, for development as far-reaching as, as, as a special economic zone, the decision-maker, the competent authority, was deemed to be the provincial equivalent department, like LEDIT, as opposed to the national department, DFFE? No, I don't. Um, and, you know, the fact that this particular project is suggesting that that water is going to come from other countries to to supply the, the necessary volumes that it needs is another reason that it shouldn't really be done by a provincial department anyway. So the fact that it's there's too many hats being, being worn by the same departments in the same province, but the fact that it's such a massive, massive, massive development and it's suggesting that water must come from agreements with neighboring countries suggests that it should it should definitely be dealt with by, at national level and I would suggest that it should be dealt with by DFFE, Department of Fisheries, Forestries and Environment as opposed to the Department of Minerals and Energy and that's one of I know, one of the issues raised by us in our papers but also in, in, in one of the other um, applications that has been brought against the various respondents which are the Limpopo Development Agency the MEC for Economic Development, Environment and Tourism, LIPOPO, and the, the Chief Director of Environment, Trade and Protection, which is also the Department of Economic Development, Environment and Tourism, LIMPOPO. <laughs> Thank you. And given the multitude of high risks that this development poses, whether one is talking about biodiversity, water, whether one's talking about impact on communities, including communities who rely significantly on land-based livelihoods, as well as actual negative, even economic impacts, for example, on, on the broader steel industry in South Africa and the broader country. Given all of that, there's a lot one could potentially argue. So could you maybe tell the listeners what are the essential arguments and the line of attack in that you are putting before the court. Yes, sure, because I mean there there are so many to choose from. But one of the big issues that we raised well is that it's it's called it's called project splitting. It's a term used when you have a big development, cut it up into smaller little pieces to make it easier to get the environmental authorizations in a piecemeal process without factoring in the massive development in itself. So what's happened here in this particular decision that we're reviewing is that environmental authorization was granted for removal of indigenous vegetation. And I don't think we've actually specified how much is actually being removed. Initially, it was 8,000 hectares. And I think the second, the more recent proposals was that it was going to be 4,000 hectares, mm. which is it's not, um, I know it sounds, it's like it's half, but it's still a monumental amount of indigenous, pristine bushveld. 100,000 protected trees, including baobab trees, will be destroyed or apparently relocated, which nobody really knows how that will happen. So this particular environmental authorization is simply to, to devastate vast swaths of indigenous vegetation and install some infrastructure fencing. That's it. So 
they haven't factored in the they haven't included the EIA for this smelter and and that those they've said has, has got to happen in future. So when they decide to develop the smelter, then they'll do an EIA for that. And when they decide to do the power uh, plant, they'll do that. Um, so there's going to be these all these different environmental impact assessments. And, you know, if you're going to devastate thousands of hectares of indigenous bush, surely you start with, with a potentially worst impact. So let's do the EIA for the smelter. Let's do the EIA for the power plant. Let's see if we've even got water. Let's see if we've even managed to get electricity, which are all up in the air at the moment. But an environmental authorization is granted with all of that not having been done. That was one of our big things is that it's project splitting. And what could very well happen is that you end up with this white elephant dead space in the Vembe Biosphere Reserve. And after that, nothing else can happen because none of it is practically able to happen or it's so ridiculous, like the climate impact, is that it's it, it really can't happen. Um, so that was one of our, our grounds. And then we had an issue with the Ledit's dual role as the, the applicant and the decision maker. Uh, we had a, a, a problem with the need and desirability considering the climate impact. So and it's like we have a climate crisis and we have a nature crisis. And I'm just going to refer to our our papers here, because it's important to realize that their own experts said that they simply cannot have a clean-fired coal power station and meet the climate expectations of this country. It's it's not possible. So what was said was that, oh, don't worry, we, we'll take out the, the coal-fired power station and we'll put in renewable. Their own energy expert says that it's impossible to run this plant, this huge, big strategic economic zone, on solar alone because it is, it's just impossible. The, the, the battery storage would take up half the, the place. So it's not, so they, they do have to have a coal fired power station and they simply can't say, well, we're not going to have it anymore because it, their own experts say that they need it. So their own environmental impact assessment report says that at least the following studies will need to be updated. Air quality, acid rain impact once the south site is in operation must be done to determine food security, on uh, the, the impact on food security and the agricultural sector. Waste, an assessment for the need and construction of a future industrial waste dump. Water, feedback on the feasibility study on water from Zimbabwe, from the Department of Water and Sanitation and feedback on the water feasibility study on the offtake dam from the Rapopo River to be constructed in the Sand River. So they are saying themselves that all of these things are up in the air, and yet an environmental authorization is given. So either the decision maker has failed to read the specialist reports properly in applying their mind to the decision, or they have read the specialist reports and decided, oh, well, I don't care because I'm biased. I, 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 you know, that's, that's the kind of situation we're in. It just, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it says, so we've said that let it fail to consider the specialist climate change assessment report or the energy impact assessment. Had it done so, it would have noted that the climate change, including the emissions inventory impacts, are rated extremely high even after mitigation, 
and mitigation of the climate change impact is not possible without eliminating the coal-fired power station from the project. So that's why I think the review is so important mm. because one of the things you have to show is that either the decision maker failed to apply yes. their mind yes. or they were biased. Yes. And I think we, we've been able to show both. And then I think what's also important to note is that that despite the report acknowledging the serious negative impacts it will have on the climate and South Africa's emissions inventory, they still authorized it. And then in terms of the water services specialist report, that their own water specialist services report acknowledges that serious feasibility risks of the project are connected to the provision of water and power, both critical dependencies. And yet the EIA was granted. An absence of, of water and there's an absence of power. They don't have either of those. So exactly. So apart even from all of the other impacts, the feasibility questions, the fundamentals, mm. dependencies for a huge ore smelter, basically power and water, and then one would also have to add the transport, the rail links to port. Don't exist. Don't exist. Yeah. And we have to open the public coffers in order to create those. So, But in the meantime, we'll just devastate 4,000 hectares of indigenous bush that is supporting a multitude of, of people and livelihoods and tourism now. We'll just, we'll, we'll devastate it and then deal with the rest later. And with, in terms of the, the incredibly weak business case, while we have to overcome the enormous logistical constraints of locating a latter-day score in the middle of the bushveld, um, which all of which would sap the returns, the projected returns on on any you know greenfield steel manufacturing project. You've also got the fact that there's still no real case for the demand to be, and where the the the, the market for the mm. steel is going to materialise from. So there's no indication anywhere in the planning reports other than a lot of, again, concessions as to the chronic glut in the steel market globally, the contraction in the steel industry locally from um, the shrinking demand, the stagnant um, regional demand for steel is all acknowledged. And then there's either vague pronouncements on all or 70% of the steel output will be exported back to China, the world's mm. biggest steel exporter, mm. or will be exported regionally. And no real assessment as to where are the buyers for the 13 million tons of crude steel. So as you say, even if you are very much in favor of industrialization as a development model, have no compunction about coal as a primary resource, as a raw material to exploit, this as a proposition for South Africa is very dubious. That makes absolutely no sense from a, from a environmental perspective, from a climate perspective, from a business perspective, from a global perspective. It, it makes no sense. If listeners would like to find out more about the case and, and access some of the, the materials, where can they go? They can access the court papers on the All Rise Attorneys for Climate and Environmental Justice website. And I'm sure Lauren will tell you about the, the yes. campaign. If you, just for a sort of a general overview of the Living Limpopo campaign, the basis for which, on which we are opposing this, the case we make for an alternative development model. You can find um, quite a lot of information on our own website, which is 
livinglimpopo.org. To go back to your earlier comment about us obstructing development, Robert, I mean, certainly we are all labelled the, what was it, the champions of poverty, um, is what the <laughs> Messina Mercado Special Economic Zone state-owned company, CEO Masoha, labelled us all. Um, but you will see we make we try to make a strong case for an alternative development um, proposition for the Vembe region, as well as exposing the flaws of this coal-based industrialization model. And I hope we've piqued a few of your listeners' interest enough to go and scout, out, scout around out there. It is quite a scandalous um, story in South Africa. Now, thank you. I'm sure they will go and investigate, but also they can look forward to a, a second podcast in which the voices of directly affected communities will come to the fore. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production of the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the coalition and our work to advance climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share it widely. The more people it reaches, the more we can help grow the movement for climate justice. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Open Society Foundation. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.